0: I want to take a break from the podcast right now, and I want to give you a gift. And I don't want to do that to thank you for being a listener. I put my heart and soul into this podcast. I love interviewing today's experts, researchers, MDs, psychologists, sleep trainers, you name it. I just I hope you feel inspired to take care of yourselves and your families. And I just want to thank you for for being a listener and hanging out with me. So, The Code Podcast 10 is going to give you a one-time $10 off code at kellylevesque.com. Your next order of protein powder, you can either use that on my grass-fed beef isolate protein or on my new vegan chocho bean protein. Now, here's what I love about my protein powders. It's three ingredients or less. We don't use fillers, emulsifiers no fortified vitamins or minerals it's easy to digest and naturally made without any enzymes or chemicals like hexane so it's three ingredients with my grass-fed beef isolate that's 100 percent grass-fed beef and it's made in the way that you would make bone broth so just heat and water and we dehydrated that end product to get that collagen rich protein powder that your whole family can drink It can be added to coffees, to smoothies, and you can get it in vanilla, chocolate, and unflavored. I wanna point out that my vanilla and chocolate is made with organic vanilla bean, organic cacao, and the only sweetener used is organic monk fruit. We don't use any maltodextrin. Our monk fruit is 100% ground monk fruit, and it's organic. And with my vegan line, I'm so excited to have launched this and to have it out into the world. It's a regenerative bean from South America called the chocho bean. And the chocho bean is the most superior plant-based protein powder you can get your hands on because not only is it a complete protein, but the process is made with heat and water only. They're crushed and soaked, and what that end product results in is an anti-nutrient-free protein powder. So you're not gonna have any lectins, phytates, or oxalates in your protein powder. Makes it super easy to digest, and it's really, really delicious and robust in cooking as well. So I love it. If I want a thicker smoothie or a smoothie bowl, And I also love it in my baked goods, from my cookies to my muffins, pancakes, and breads. It's the perfect protein addition. So if you want to give either of these proteins a try or you've already been purchasing these proteins and want to take advantage of this special deal, the code PODCAST10 is going to get you $10 off for being a listener here at the Be Well by Kelly podcast. So head to kellylevesque.com or bewellbykelly.com Put the protein you'd like to purchase in your cart and use the code PODCAST10 for $10 off. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in.
1: Deer will go out and find like rotten apples and and eat them to get drunk. Birds as well. And so there's something very deeply ingrained in us that says, take drugs, right? So it's evolutionary that we have this inherent trust of,
0: of medications. Dr. Lindsay Elmore is a pharmacist, author, speaker, podcaster, and network marketing leader with a knack for cutting through the confusion and sharing the truth about the myriad of health and wellness choices available. She shares her passion for natural wellness on stages around the world and reaches countless others through social media platforms. Dr. Elmore's mission is to share her knowledge and expertise in a way to empower you to make tough decisions, to help you learn to trust your inner voice, to give you the courage to take care of yourself and others. And in doing so, she strives to inspire you to find your greater purpose. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome Lindsay to the show. Lindsay, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. We just riffed for like 10 minutes before this started. We have so much to uncover. I I already know that I could talk to you for two hours. So first of all, thank you for sharing an hour of your time with me. I know you're super busy, but you are such a resource of information. And I just, I'm so excited to have you on today.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'm so impressed with the work that you do and your Instagram is so
0: beautiful and all the things. So thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm like, I'm really excited to learn really your background because you have all these educational videos on Instagram and you have your wellness made simple program online and all of these awesome like educational platforms to teach people about functional medicine, but you didn't start that way. You were trained traditionally as a pharmacist. So can we talk about your path to pharmacy and its demise?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my entry into healthcare happened very very early. I was raised by a single mom, she was a nurse, and so, you know, when you when you're a child of a single mom, you end up at work with your mom. And so I started filing charts and answering phones at like age 14 and just had like an understanding of of science and got exposed to a lot of healthcare through that, inpatient and outpatient, everything. And so I also started my very first foray into scientific research, um, which it was a weave through my entire career as well. So I, I graduate from high school. I go to college. I started as a biology major, hated it and became a chemistry major and started doing research in a nanocrystallography lab so we were growing like really tiny protein crystals it was cool the guy i worked for was an astronaut and so it it was really fun and so i get my degree in chemistry and i had planned to go to med school and i started studying for the mcat and i was like oh i do not want to take this test i don't want to deal with this it's not enough of what I want to do. And I really wanted to be an actress and a singer and a dancer growing up. And my mom was like, no, no, you have to find a real job. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what led me down this chemistry pathway. And everybody just thought I was going to be a doctor because I I just had so much knowledge, even as a t- young teenager, about healthcare. So I decide I don't want to go to medical school. And then I'm like, okay, well, I'll just get a PhD in chemistry. And so many people were like, don't get a PhD in chemistry. It's not who you are. You're not going to be satisfied with the work that you get, the competition that you have. You know, you're know, you just not going to like it. So I was like, well, crap, now I have no life plan. And then one of the women that I worked with in the lab comes in one day and says, I know what you should do. You should be a pharmacist. And so I was like, great. And at the time, I had lived in Alabama my entire life, and I was going. I was leaving on a jet plane and going to another location. And so I attended the University of California, San Francisco, and got my doctorate in pharmacy there, did some more graduate-level research. I mean, really prestigious school, all of the things. But during my first year in, in pharmacy school, I tore my ACL. And that was my first experience being a patient within the healthcare system, right? And so I go through the surgeries, the pain meds, the rehab, the antibiotics, the like, you know, we got to make sure there's nothing here to be sure there's nothing there, all the things, all the MRIs, all the things. And so that experience was interesting. And during the recovery from ACL surgery, you are required to wear a leg brace and they lock your leg out straight. Well, that means that every time that you walk, in order to get your leg that won't bend around, you've either got to swing your leg out or you've got to hike your hip every single time. So I realized one day that I couldn't sit on my sitting bones. And that landed me in the chiropractor's office. And my hips were like a solid like two inches apart from one another. And so that landed me in the chiropractor's office. And I happened to mention to her, Doc, I feel like I'm going to die because I haven't slept in about a month. I was not smart enough at the time to realize that doing like intense brain training, like right before you go to sleep is not the way to go to sleep. And so I was like trying to do something beneficial for myself, but at the wrong time of day. And so I hadn't slept. I I had really bad insomnia. I'd been taking Ambien. I'd been, you know, all the things. And so she says, oh, you should go to the acupuncturist. And so then I ended up in the acupuncturist's office and that just opened my eyes to the that was the first time that i had this awareness that there was a different way to practice medicine because all i had ever been exposed to was the western medicine model and so i started learning about herbs i started learning about supplements i started learning about chinese medicine and the different approaches to it i attended some integrative medicine conferences where i started to learn a little bit about ayurveda um there was this one dude that I was like so impressed with. His whole brand and his whole like mission in life is to teach people how to make their vision better. And so he has all these exercises. And I'm like, who talks about actively improving your vision? And so I met some very influential people along the way that really poured life and knowledge into me. And then kind of just continued, and continued, and continued. And because I'm an overachiever, I I did both my year one and year two residencies. Um, the first one was in internal medicine and then in family medicine. So number one, how did this all start to unravel? I made a mistake, a calculation error, my first year residency, and I almost killed someone. And I was like, okay, this is Intense. That happened, and then in my second year residency, I had to convert somebody from U one hundred to U five hundred insulin. And so, normally in ten milliliters of insulin, you have a hundred units. Well, U five hundred insulin is five times more concentrated. You make one dosing error, and your patient will die. Mm-hmm. Uh, highly likely unless you get some glucagon on board or you know it right. unless you recognize it immediately
0: right watch the was, good nurse if you don't know
1: yes <laughs> yes i haven't
0: seen the good nurse is it good oh it's literally that's how he kills people with insulin into their saline bags
1: it's honestly because it drops blood sugar not to nothing. that uncommon it's yeah. not the it's not the most uncommon of ways to you know when that happens, which God forbid. Um, But I was so scared and everything went okay. But that, that intensive fear of I can really harm someone with what I'm doing. Yeah. It's a profound thing. And so then I graduate from residency. I'm starting to see like the chinks in the armor that it's just it's all these people taking all these meds and nobody's getting better. Everybody's just taking meds. And then started to just more and more and more of just like, oh my gosh, nobody's eating right. And nobody taught me anything about food in school. And nobody nobody mentioned that X, Y, and Z could be potentially dangerous for people. Nobody taught me in school that that medications could deplete nutrients. I mean, a few here and there for like the proton pump inhibitors, like the omeprazols and the pantoprazols of the world. But really and truly, we don't talk about the true side effect burden of medications. And so fast forward my final straw. I was working as a transitions of care pharmacist and I go into this guy's room and he's just had a heart attack and I'm handing him his bag of of like six medications. And I'm like, how many meds were you on before you came here? And he said, none. And my heart just broke. I had had another patient that came in completely catatonic with a garbage bag full of all 56 of her medications that she took on a daily and regular basis. And there was nothing wrong with her. She was just catatonic from all the meds. All we had to do was just get rid of the meds. And and it tore my heart out when we discharged her because she asked for the meds back. And I'm mm-hmm. like, Ooh. oh. And so I realized I was doing nothing to actually empower people mm-hmm. to figure out what's wrong. Like mm-hmm. what is actually wrong? Why is it wrong? How do we correct what's wrong? And how do we love ourselves enough to be be like the radical ones that actually take care of ourselves. And so that was a, a long way of saying that's where it kind of ended for me. And after that, I never really looked back. I just kept getting more training, started doing Institute for Functional Medicine, started my own podcast so I could learn from people and just started teaching more and more and more about stuff
0: that I actually felt like would help people. Mm-hmm. It's crazy that we're at this place in the world where it is truly a band aid fix when you go to a doctor's office. Let's take a minute for today's sponsor, Haya. Haya is my boy's multivitamin, and I chose it because the majority of children's multivitamins on the market are using improper forms of vitamins. They're filled with two teaspoons of sugar, and a lot of times they're made with gummy junk. So when Haya was created and pediatrician approved, I decided to give it a try and here's why I love it. It's formulated with the help of nutrition experts, and it's pressed with 12 organic fruits and veggies, and then supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals, including vitamin D, B12, C, zinc, and folate. I'd like to point out that all the B vitamins are methylated and in their proper forms, which is something I really appreciate and look for in all multivitamins from kids to adults. But I love that these essential nutrients are really there to help support immunity, energy, brain function, concentration, teeth, bones, and more. They're vegan, dairy-free, allergy-free, gelatin-free, nut-free, and everything else you can imagine free. And I just love that my kids remind me to eat it every single day. They're always asking for their chewies uh, when they see the cabinet. When I open the smoothie cabinet, there they are, and they will reach for them. And so I've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's multivitamin. For you guys, you're gonna receive 50% off your first order. And to claim this deal, you must go to HayaHealth.com forward slash Kelly. This deal is not available on their regular website. So go to h-i-y-a-h-e-a-l-t-h.com slash Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. There is definitely a time and a place for emergency medicine, for surgical interventions, but I mean, like, how do you think we got here? Like, where? what is the history of pharma And how has it impacted how doctors practice today?
1: Wow. Okay. That is a big question to unpack. Um, So at the very origins of pharmaceuticals, we have the the morphines and the cocaines of the world. We have all of the plant-based medicines that put us out of our minds, right? (laughs) We have opium. We have, you know, just like I said, anything plant-based. And it was the Wild West. I mean, you could put whatever you wanted to in a medication and label it anything that you wanted. Um, So they would commonly have alcohol. There would be like cough syrups for children that contained morphine. And so because one of the four primary human pursuits, you know, when we get past the sex and the food, and the security, there's there's also a very well-documented, profound draw towards taking medications and taking substances that get you high, right? That yeah. out-of-body, that hallucinatory, it's not even just in humans, it's across all primates, And as well as some ungulates, so like deer will go out and find like rotten apples and and eat them to get drunk, birds as well. And so there's something very deeply ingrained in us that says, take drugs, right? Mm -hmm. So it's evolutionary that we have this inherent trust of, of medications. So this guy comes along and he says, we have to have clean food, And at the time, this is probably like the 1910s, at the time, food also did not have to be what it said it was. You know, you could have coffee that had sawdust in it, or you could have milk that was not milk at all. So this guy comes along, he says, we've got to have good food. And you could also add anything you wanted into food back then. So any kind of preservative, if you needed to put a little arsenic in there. How about some antifreeze? You definitely need that in your food. You could do all of these things inside of foods. And so they started doing testing of different food additives to look at where's the toxicity point. And somebody comes along and says, we should probably be talking about this as it relates to drugs, as well. So they kind of slid the clean food and now drug act. And this was the first attempt to do any kind of regulation over pharmaceuticals. It didn't work because the pharmaceutical industry does what it does best and it ignores regulations. And so then we fast forward and we get to the antibiotic era where penicillin becomes a life saving medication, where there is a a mad dash, huge governmental investment into the infrastructure to produce penicillin and then teramycin and then tetracycline as a very, very early antibiotic that we have. And so we have this huge governmental push to create medication. And then when World War I ends, instead of the government being like, hey, our tax dollars just paid for like the creation of the pharmaceutical industry, we're going to need you to pay us back for that, they gave them all the factories. They just gave the companies all of the factories. So then we start to move into the more modern era. So now pharmacy has all these assets. They've created this huge demand of people seeing people literally have their lives saved by anti mm-hmm. antibiotic medications. Then we get into an era where we introduce a character named Arthur and Mortimer Sackler and Raymond is their third brother. So there are three physicians and Arthur decides that he wants to control, manipulate, inform how we market different pharmaceuticals. Because there was debate at this time about whether pharmaceutical companies should ever be able to make a profit, right? Mm -hmm. Jonas Salk, the creator of the polio vaccine, said you can't patent the sun. And what he meant was this came from the earth because all of the original drugs came from the earth. This came from the earth, and therefore, why would I put the patent and try to make money off of it? George Wyeth, the founder of Wyeth Pharmaceuticals, originally started out as like, we do not need to make massive amounts of money. But Arthur Sackler staunchly disagreed with them, and he became the master of how do we market pharmaceuticals without marketing pharmaceuticals because direct-to-consumer advertising at the time was not allowed. So he started this huge push of advertising in medical journals. Well, his argument was medical journals are intended for physicians and clinicians. But what happens is if you know any if you if you've been to doctors offices, you see some medical journals laying around waiting rooms and things. So it was an inadvertent way to get consumer to get information to consumers. Arthur Sackler also masterminds the original pharmaceutical rep, which are at the time called detail men. And he was smart. And so, what he would do is he would not send the detail men to varieties of physicians. He would focus on the more aggressive prescribers. And he trained his staff to really form a relationship with the prescribers. And this isn't about like, hey, let me tell you about this drug. This is about, tell me about your children. Tell me about your wife. What are you doing over the summer? Like really dive into these relationships. And it worked. It worked, it worked. Then we get to an era where somebody says, you know what? Antibiotics are good. Drugs that people take every day are better. And so we see Arthur Sackler say, I am going to create the first ever billion dollar drug. And he creates Valium and markets it as mommy's little helper. Mommy's little helper. So Valium is a benzodiazepine. It's basically alcohol in a tablet form. It engages the same receptors, has very similar side effects, all the things. It's very similar to to alcohol. So then you press forward, we see an explosion in the number of synthetic medications that we have. We see an explosion in guideline-based treatment protocols. And that honestly dates back to a very important document in the history of medical education called the Flexner Report. So Stanley Flexner was this guy who was basically commissioned to write the standards of medical education, and they still stand to this day. And it basically the Flexner report basically villainized natural approaches as well as like using homeopathy and chiropractor and and all of these traditional healing modalities that we had, and instead. Establish what we know to be medicine today, which is drugs and surgery. drugs and surgery. That's what it is. It's drugs and surgery. And so that really transformed that really transformed the course of medicine, was the, the Flexner report and this push towards kind of making everybody uniform, like everybody gets the same drugs. Everybody gets this treatment pathway. This, da, 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 da. this is this. We also see an explosion in the number of diagnoses that we have. Meanwhile, our food supply is getting dirtier and dirtier, making us sicker and sicker. And we're in this loop. Then we see the 80s where we have this huge explosion in pharmaceutical reps. We see the ban on direct-to-consumer advertising being lifted. We start to see drug commercials on TVs, in commercial magazines, all the things like drugs just permeate many, many different areas of our life. And we have been conditioned to think that when we go to a doc that we're supposed to walk out with a prescription every single time, which is not necessarily the case. We then see removal of potential liabilities of risk being removed in in the late 80s that pharmaceutical companies can create Medications that then they don't have to like pay for if there's problems, it's concerning. And then we see the OxyContin crisis, and the OxyContin crisis is oh, just what so many layers of failure, you know. Um, it, it's a perfect example of why we need to fact check drug companies. And so on my podcast, I interviewed Dr. John Abramson, who was an expert witness for the FBI and the DOJ in the, I don't know who sued the People versus Pfizer, for lack of a better way to name the case. But they walked away with the largest criminal fines in U.S. history because of their illegal marketing of three different medications, Bextra, Zyvox, and Geodon. And so those three medications, they had really just puffed up what they did. And what he said was so horrifying about his research as he prepared for this case is he came to the realization that this whole concept of evidence-based medicine, right, Mm -hmm. where a drug company is trying to get their drug to market, and we just like take for granted that what they submit to the peer-reviewed journal is correct, Mm -hmm. That's cute. That's cute that we don't demand to see like the actual raw data and that there's no, it's on the ethics of the drug company to submit the correct data. But does that always occur? I don't
0: know. I don't know.
1: So just to, I'm
0: going to stop you because I think this is so critically important for people to understand What Lindsay is saying is that when a drug company wants to take a drug to market, they're going to go through multiple trials. They're going to probably do animal trials and they're going to take it to human trials. They're going to have multiple sites where they're recruiting patients. That patient information is recorded and then those patients are entered into that trial. There should be a placebo arm. There should be an active pharmaceutical arm. There needs to be accountability there. Then they're collecting all this data and then to submit to the FDA. The FDA is not going to take thousands of papers worth of documentation. They're going to take a summary report of what they're telling you their drug does, what the results were, and no one's fact-checking the background of that summary report ever. Right, right.
1: And, okay, so what you're describing is is placebo-controlled trials. We also need trials where, let's say I have a drug over here that does one thing. Well, there's this thing that pharmaceutical industries figured out really 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 early in drug research is that if you replace one atom you can make the claim that it's a completely different drug even if it does the exact same <laughs> thing so this is the the me too drugs is what they're called and so we can take a drug that already exists that's maybe 4 dollars a month right mm-hmm. and then you can change one atom apply for a new patent, and boom, now you've got a drug that's $40 or $400 a month because we have no governmental oversight on drug pricing in this country. Can we fix that? And so what happens is the drug companies heavily market this more expensive option. But what you can't take this new drug and simply compare it to placebo. You have to look at what does it compare to the drug that's currently on the market that's dirt cheap that people have been taking for 15 years without having significant side effects because we see a lot of drugs that come to market that 18 months in, it's like, ooh, we really made a mistake there. Uh, we gotta pull that back, total recall, and it, you gotta get it off of the off of the market. There's so many statistical manipulations that can go into drug research. One is non-inferiority. And that's where you say, all right, we got two drugs. They're me too drugs. And you can say this new drug is statistically significant for improving these symptoms. But if it's a non-inferiority, that means that the two drugs are still equal. They're still equal. I read a study recently that my student brought to my attention and he's like, do you think that this is criminal? And what the drug company did was they took a new drug and compared it to placebo, but they couldn't prove that it was statistically superior. So they just said, "Well, it's non-inferior to placebo." And I'm like, "So what you're saying is that your drug is a placebo effect. It is you're you're saying your drug is the same as placebo." but then you're going to give it to people anyways. You're going Ugh. to give it to people anyways. And that was published in a reputable medical journal. I mean, it's it's nuts. So there's that statistical manipulation. And then there's another one that got Pfizer in a lot of trouble because of their marketing of Lipitor that brought a um, atorvastatin to the market. They did something very common, honestly, um, which is absolute risk reduction versus relative risk reduction. So an absolute risk reduction, um, don't absolutely quote me on this, but let's say that in the atorvastatin group, so the intervention group, 92% of people did not have the primary endpoint, right? Okay, so the primary endpoint is cardiovascular death, stroke, MI, whatever their endpoints were. But let's say that in the atorvastatin group, the drug group, 92% of people didn't have this problem, all right? Mm-hmm. In the placebo group, 93.1% of people, okay? So that is an absolute difference of 1.1%. But if you take that 1.1% and put it over the baseline risk, it turns that into a 35%, 37% relative risk reduction. So it's relative to the risk that you had in the first place, which was already relatively low. And so it looks great in shiny, glossy ads, like 30% reduction in cardiovascular risk. And then you read the fine print and it's like the
0: actual change was 1.1. 1. 1. Right. Okay. All right. That's just like, um, that's the marketing spin to make it feel like it's making a bigger impact and there are mm-hmm. so many drugs that have had these type of marketing campaigns put behind them and i've seen you talk about it on instagram that a lot of these medications are quote unquote useless <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> and people get mad people get so mad especially as it relates to statin medications but look you take all the statin medication data taking a statin medication on average will extend your life by 4 days and so yeah. in in medical research there's this concept of dose versus poems and so does are disease oriented outcomes right mm-hmm. but patient oriented evidence that matters is what we're actually after right mm-hmm. and so you know a lot of people they don't care if they have hyperkalemia they you know they don't care if their potassium goes too high on a medication They care if they die, right? And so we need to be looking at those patient-oriented evidence that matters. Because if all we're doing is extending life by four days, and while concomitantly giving people a higher risk for rhabdomyolysis, for liver disease, what are we doing? Why are we doing so many medical interventions, which ultimately don't lead truly to patient-oriented evidence that matters. You know, I I talk about the antidepressants not really working that well. I mean, at their best, they might work in 50% of the people that try them, that consistently use them. It takes six weeks for them to kick in. But even among the antidepressant medicines, you can rank which ones work the best. So you take a medicine like trazodone that was used for, for depression, doesn't work. And so now it's been spun into a, a sleep aid and people can't get off of it because antidepressants in a lot of ways create chemical dependencies in the body. So addiction can happen two ways. You know, people can really get addicted to being high, which I think is what we think of addiction as. But you can also just get addicted to a lot of medications that we don't even think about being addictive because they create a chemical dependency. You're dependent on them to help you stabilize your chemistry again. And so it's very interesting to look at a drug like gabapentin. Sure, you're going to have a really loud subset of people that's like, gabapentin saved my life. What are you talking about? But then there's like the 80% of people that don't get any benefit from it. And what do we do is we keep pushing the dose, pushing the dose, pushing the dose, pushing the dose, which also indicates to me that gabapentin does not really work because if you have a therapeutic dose range anywhere from 300 milligrams to 3,000, that means that you've got problems here. And so look, if you're going to take medications, number one, give them a fighting chance to work. If you've had severe depression for a long time and you're going to start an antidepressant medication, Take some amino acids so you have some tryptophan to help you build some serotonin because if you don't have any tryptophan, you can't build your serotonin. And Mm -hmm. so also take steps to mitigate the damage that the medications can do. If you're taking a statin medication, take some CoQ10. If you are taking a proton pump inhibitor, please do not go a day without a multiple vitamin in your daily routine. Be cognizant of what can happen With medications, and there's so much we could go into about medications that disrupt our microbiome, that lead our microbiome into directions that make us more overweight, that also lead to escalating doses of medications. Like One of the most common medications in the United States is metformin. Well, you start taking metformin and your gut bacteria are like, ew, foreign invader, we do not like you. And so it shifts your gut bacteria towards bacteria that are more likely to metabolize metformin. And so now you've gone from taking 500 milligrams a day to 500 milligrams twice a day to 750 in the morning, 500 at night. All of a sudden you're up to a gram twice a day, maxing out your doses, and now you've got lactic acidosis, you've got weight gain, and we've still not dealt with the fact that what we have is an insulin problem. We have an insulin problem. The insulin secretagogues are also really concerning for me. So these are the sulfonylurea medications, glipizide, gliburide, And these increase output of insulin in the body, but you sit back and you go, wait a minute, isn't too high of insulin and insulin resistance the root cause of this? Right. It is. (laughs) So we're making the root cause worse while chasing our tails being like,
0: well, the glucometer looks good. Right. But meanwhile, inflammation is high. The patient's gaining weight and we're getting worse and worse insulin resistance.
1: Yeah. I mean, people want to talk about all the hormonal imbalances, and people are like, oh my God, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, no libido, you know, weight gain, all the things. My hair's falling out. But up under all of those sex steroid problems is a thyroid problem. And up under that thyroid problem is always cortisol and insulin. Cortisol and insulin are the hormonal root causes of myriad of of diseases. And so we have to look at what throws off cortisol and what throws off insulin. And I teach all the time, there's only eight root causes of illness. And so if it's not one of those,
0: let's figure that out. Our next sponsor is Athletic Greens. I take AG1 every day because about a year after Toshin's birth, I felt really nutrient depleted. I decided to do a slew of blood tests with my functional MD and found through a NutriVal that I was nutrient depleted. Now, being that I try really hard to supplement appropriately and eat a nutrient dense Fab Four diet, this was quite surprising, but also not so much of a surprise because I have had two babies back to back and breastfed both of them for over 18 months. So I was literally giving all my nutrition away. I started taking AG1 in the afternoon as insurance. I wanted this nutritional powerhouse to level up and be an efficient way for me to get in a bunch of nutrients. And I noticed a big difference in my energy and I started to actually crave it. So it has been such a key part of my life. It is way more than greens. It gives you all of the health promoting products like a multivitamin, a multimineral, prebiotics, probiotics, and it's really supportive of whole body health so you can thrive and great gut health. So if you want to take ownership over your health like I had to do, today is a good day to start. Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. So go to athleticgreens.com forward slash be well. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash be well and check it out. It's an all-time favorite. Let's unpack the cortisol and insulin driving mechanisms to dysregulating thyroid and sex hormones. Like, Why are those two the cause of all the problems downstream?
1: So first and foremost, cortisol is driven by stress. Mm -hmm. It is driven by lack of sleep, which sleep disorders are one of the primary causes of, of disease. Cortisol is increased by our toxic burden. And so, toxins and toxicants are also problematic. Allergens and antigens can drive our cortisol response as well as enhance cortisol's ability to bolster the inflammatory response, right? Because cortisol is trying to save your life. It's it's doing its best here, friends. But exposure to allergens and antigens, dysbiosis can throw off your cortisol level as well. So if your microbiome is not good, it's not good everywhere, right? Right. Um, that drives cortisol. Um, nutrient, Deficiencies, certainly if you're going hungry, can drive the cortisol response. The opposite side of nutrient deficiencies is nutrient excesses, which is the primary cause of insulin resistance. And it's also low quality calories that come into play there, Um, highly processed foods and just so excesses in the diet and not just excessive calories, but excessive sugar Flour. Excessive flour, excessive dairy. We know what's bad for us, friends. They just taste delicious. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> it's been engineered that way. And so the last of the stains of the eight root causes of disease are sedentaryism. And so sedentaryism is going to very highly impact our insulin levels as well as allowing us to accumulate toxic fat, which is going to further drive the cortisol response. Okay. So then the last one is sociogenomics. And I think this can be really empowering to people. In functional medicine, we think about 5% of disease is caused by our genes. So that means like we can really have a huge like impact over our health and well-being. Socioeconomic problems as it relates to healthcare are very, very real and do need to be addressed. And we do need equality in healthcare, all the things. And that can be a huge driver of both cortisol and <laughs> insulin because you look at lower socioeconomic levels, they have less access to health care, less access to healthy food. And so that's going to drive both of our key problems. So then what happens? Well, cortisol. Goes upstream to the thyroid and is like, hey, thyroid, you know how you want to take that moderately active T4 and turn it into Superman active T3? We're not going to do that. Cortisol comes in and it increases the proportion of T4 that is converted into reverse T3 instead of into T3. Well, reverse T3 is like T3's like. A cousin that just can't get the job done, right? It's almost the same. It's just the molecule has been flipped. But it makes a huge difference in your hormonal balance with your thyroid. Then we've got now elevated levels of insulin that are making us gain weight. Now we've got crappy thyroid function, which is making us gain weight. We also see the impacts on our cardiovascular system, making it less easy to exercise. We see the reductions in motivation, like the list goes on and on and on about how this perpetuates and feeds each other, right? Then what happens? We keep moving up our chain. Then what happens? is now maybe we're slightly overweight or we are thin but metabolically unhealthy where we are still depositing fat in our liver because the fat and the because the sugar that we're eating is not being taken up by our muscles and instead it's being stored as glycogen which gets stored in the liver okay so then what happens is these fatty infiltrates make it harder to detoxify estrogen, and it makes it harder to detoxify all of these different spent hormones. It's harder to detoxify the cortisol. The insulin's just hanging out there with nowhere to go. So then we get into this state where estrogen becomes more dominant, which throws off testosterone, which throws off progesterone, which also feeds back into the underlying insulin problem by creating even more metabolic illness. And that is how the hierarchy of hormones kind of works. And the further you go up the chain, the more you've got to undo as you get back down to the cortisol and the insulin problem. But the best news ever It doesn't really take much to change your cortisol and your insulin levels. It's almost miraculous how quickly you can do it. I mean, you can, I I was listening to a, a, a physician talk the other day on a podcast. You can drop your blood pressure 20 points in 10 days if you radically transform the way that you eat, the way that you exercise, the way that you sleep, the way that you stress, the way that you uh, intoxicate yourself, the exposure to allergens and antigens in your food. We want health to be simple. We want it to be like that thing where you're like, well, that was actually pretty easy. What do I do next? And so I don't care where you start, but if you just go away from this podcast and are just like, you know what, I'm going to drink a little bit more water tomorrow, or I am going to work out for one extra minute, or what I am going to do one push up, I'm going to floss one extra tooth, like whatever, mm-hmm. I'm going to eat one extra vegetable, whatever it is, just begin. Because I think ultimately, we kind of know what to do. It's just our ancient brains are very stupid in knowing what to do because they're saying, hey, I need you to sit still, get fat, sleep a lot, and not put yourself at risk so that we can survive. That's what I need to see happen. But that's not how we need to operate
0: in this modern world. Right. And like full circle, taking it back to pharma and taking it back to a quick fix. That's our ancient brain. Like you're telling me that you can give me a pill and I don't have to work hard for something and that's survival and it's going to fix it. But ultimately we take it all the way back up that chain to the beginning, which is insulin and cortisol and getting those in check. And I'm so thankful that you said it's actually... Pretty easy, because in practice with some of the functional MDs and having clients with pre-diabetes being suggested to go on metformin or to you know uh, use a specific drug, it is pretty easy for me to get someone's blood sugar in the normal range using a regular traditional glucometer and checking for it. Getting blood tests, even if it's as simple as like getting an A1C, looking at ninety days, like seeing that percentage drop that balancing your blood sugar and getting outside and moving your body a little bit will get insulin and cortisol pretty much in check and right. it doesn't have to be that that difficult but that's no. having a massive effect on how you feel your energy levels your sex drive your you know your drive in your business everything like mm-hmm. how you feel emotionally like it's it's all impacted and i just i'm so glad you pointed that out because i think it feels really overwhelming to to think I'm going to have to get like the woman who came in and was catatonic. Like, how are we going to get her off 56 medications? Like this is the kind of overwhelm that people are feeling, especially post pandemic of maybe they have just completely trusted their doctor and the pharmaceutical companies and all of the quick fixes, but there's definitely, there's definitely a better way. And it's interesting because I have a, An ER nurse that lives on my street, and she's an amazing human and mom, and you know, has always been in traditional healthcare and worked in the ER and in the trauma unit during COVID and was, you know, rocked by all of that. And, you know, playing the cul-de-sac with the kids late in the afternoon. And I'm just chipping away at her little by little, you know, and it's like amazing. Like she was on a couple medic off all her medications, like proactive about like her amino acid intake, proactive about movement, like feeling the best I've ever seen her feel. And it's like really rewarding because it's just amazing to see that, that like pride and glow and control and also getting yourself off medications. When someone said this is wrong with you or that's wrong with you, or you have to be taking, you know, this or that to feel your best or to be yourself and to realize when you come off that, you didn't need those things and that Mm. there wasn't anything wrong with you, but no one told you that maybe your birth control was having an effect on your mood. And so then they said, well, we'll just add a antidepressant on top of your birth control. And by the way, your life is really stressful. Cortisol hit, you know, it's just like amazing to me that there's, there's no understanding of not only the, the side effects of specific medications and asking the questions of patients, like how are you feeling after you're taking this? but just to second Band-Aid something immediately with another medication. It's just, anyways, I'm so, I'm on a soapbox now, but I'm so happy that you're here because it's just, it. we need people like you beating the drum around, around wellness, specifically in the space of pharma and the impacts it's having on, whether it's medications being useless, side effects, microbiome impacts, like these, no one's asking these questions and no one's talking about this stuff. Right.
1: Yeah, it's really strange to me. I really want to spend a, just a tiny bit of time. I know thyroid issues are such a huge concern for people. And our approach to thyroid, thyroid disease is just so wrong. I mean, Graves' disease is one thing. You know, if you're really, really, really suffering from Graves' disease, it's an extraordinarily difficult disease state to treat. And I can't say that I'm opposed to the treatments. I mean, if I had Graves' disease, doing the radioactive iodine might be in my like consideration. I think it's a safer, I think it's a more effective option than the methimazole. And the methimazole is just such a rough med. But that's little tiny numbers. The overwhelming majority of thyroid disease is hypothyroidism. And the most common cause is Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So first and foremost, if you're being told something's up with your thyroid, do not settle for just having a TSH drawn. Get a Mm T3, a T4, and a TPO um, so that you can look at your um, peroxidase antibodies because we need to see a full spectrum. The other thing is labs are so cute. We determine what is normal for labs based on the average in the population and two standard deviations, right? That's how we determine normal levels. Well, we've increasingly been getting sicker and sicker and sicker over the past 50, 60 years, and so our normal has shifted. And it's like, no, no, it's still normal over here where it used to be versus where it is now. Thyroid labs have really gotten wide at this point. And so we need to narrow that range. We don't want to look for what's normal. We want to look for what's ideal. So look and see if your clinician is looking for ideal or normal, because if your thyroid is off and you feel like crap, even if your lab values are normal, it's not normal for you. And that's what matters. Another thing about the treatment of thyroid conditions the most common medication given is levothyroxine or Synthroid. Levothyroxine only contains T4. So if you have an enzymatic deficiency that prevents you from converting T4 into T3, you're never going to get to the most active form of thyroid hormone. And so you can ask for medications, they're animal-based, they're bovine and porcine. And so if you choose to live a vegetarian lifestyle or have religious convictions that prevent you from eating either beef or pork, fine. But at least in that medication, you're getting the combination of T4 and T3 so that if an enzymatic conversion problem is your problem, you can overcome that and help with that. The last piece of patient education that I think everyone who is taking thyroid medication needs to know is the administration and how you take the medication is very, very important. So this medication is intended to be taken first thing in the morning upon rising with nothing more than water, right? Nothing more than water. And you need to wait. 30 minutes or so, because your thyroid hormone, the T4, contains these four big iodine groups on the side. Iodines have big nebulous electron clouds, and so therefore they become magnetic. So they've got this negatively charged cloud around them. Well, that means that if you are taking your thyroid supplement alongside your multiple vitamin that has calcium and magnesium and zinc and other divalent cations, you're binding your thyroid drug and then you just poop it out. And then you go back to the doctor and you're like, doc, it's not working. And they're like, okay, increase the dose. I want to go above and beyond to know that my peeps know, again, if you're going to take medications, let's at least take them correctly so that they are most likely to work and less likely to harm you. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And to know that there are so many lifestyle interventions that can really make a massive impact in your health and well-being. So to close up today, I know because I've already taken so much of your time, I want to know for you personally, you've obviously created hundreds of educational videos and your course and you have a book, but for you and Mm -hmm. your personal health journey, what have been like the daily practices that you've implemented and the things that have made a statistically significant, we'll say, N of one in your life impact and improvement?
1: I mean, I think the hardest thing for anybody to do that I can't even claim to be perfect at this because no one is. Just show up for yourself. Just show up for yourself, whether that is turning off the TV at 9.30 and falling asleep by 10 p.m., whether that is getting up and going outside first thing in the morning to help regulate your circadian rhythm so that you're getting your cortisol back in balance, if that is drinking an extra glass of water, walking an extra five minutes, if that is getting together and just laughing with a friend about whatever, whatever it is that allows you to show up for yourself, is really important. I also think that it's not just about the physical body. It's about doing mental practices that activate your reticular activating system towards the good versus the bad. So having a gratitude practice, having a a meditation practice, all the things. And for me, I also, I find great comfort and great wonderment and great appreciation with the fact that I truly believe that I'm a part of something bigger. Like my life has purpose. My life has meaning and everybody's does. Everybody's does. And so if you're at a place where you've been engaging with Western medicine or, and you've been told something is wrong with you, somebody's beat you down You feel like you're at the end of your rope. All they want to do is medications. All they want to do is surgery. All they want to do is tell me how wrong I am for being 15 pounds overweight, even though they haven't done a DEXA scan to determine whether or not you're metabolically fit in the first place. Just stop all those negative voices in your head and hear me so loud and clearly that you matter. You have purpose. You have the ability To wake up right now and go, I'm going to do one small thing nice for myself. I'm just going to do one small thing nice for myself. And the more nice things you do for yourself, the more easy it becomes. You know, the more good food you eat, the more you want it. The more you exercise, the more you're like, heck yeah. The more you go outside into nature and just take in the sights and the sounds and ground yourself. I don't care what it is. Just do something. Just do something nicer today than you did to yourself
0: yesterday. Such a refreshing way to end the podcast. And I think really attainable because it doesn't, it doesn't need to be a strict cleanse or something hard. It's starting somewhere. It's starting somewhere small to change your energetic vibration to really, mm-hmm. to really be in a place of gratitude and positivity. And for me, I mean, I, I feel like just echoing what you said for me, it's that nature time. Like it yes. is Chris knows, my husband knows. If there is a minute that we need, like if I need a, a mind change or a shift, it's like, get in the car, go to the beach, get in the car, go to the beach, and like uh-huh. walk on the beach, play in the sand with my boys, whatever time of the day I can sneak it in. It's like the world is wondrous. And this is uh-huh. we're um, we're so lucky to be here. And it is not a negative bad place, it's actually a miracle that we're here. Right. Yes. Yes.
1: And listener, you are a miracle, right? right? That's that's what is so powerful. When you come to a point where you actually go, I appreciate myself exactly as I am. I'm not perfect and I'm not meant to be. But I am where I am and I can begin right now. Don't ever let that mentality of I'm not far enough along so therefore I can't start creep in to your psyche because it's not true. It's not Mm -hmm. true. You can start right now by doing one thing. Go through in your head and just create possibilities. I could do this or I could do that. I could do that. Stop telling yourself what you should do. Replace the word should with could in your vocabulary from now on. From now on, I never want to hear should come out of your mouth. And I definitely don't want to tell, don't want to hear you tell anybody else what they should do, you know? But, and instead of framing things negatively, don't ask yourself what's preventing you from going to the gym. Ask yourself what would make it easier tomorrow morning for me to get up and go to the gym. So reframe all of those negative talking points like, I hate kale. I could go to the grocery store and look for two vegetables that I've never had before. Like Mm. reframe your approach and have more fun with your personal health journey. You know, maybe I recently bought a rebounder for my living room and it's just fun. And I sit on a bouncy ball and it's fun and have more fun with your health and well-being.
0: Absolutely. Well, Wellness Made Simple is an easy way for people to start. You have a your Instagram, your website, your book. I love following you on Instagram. I mean, I, we talked about that's how I found you. I laughed at one of your videos and I was like, she's my kind of gal. I'd love Aww. to talk more. So yes. where can people follow along? Where can they learn to have more fun? Where can they like learn how to start take care, taking care of themselves, whether that's body dysfunctions, body functions, de-stressing, how to eat, exercise, sleep, Where do you share all the tools? Where can they follow along? Sure. So you can come to lindsayelmore.com or to
1: wellnessmadesimple.us. That is my subscription functional medicine training platform. And then you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook. I'm at Lindsay Elmore. And then on TikTok and Pinterest, I'm at Dr. Lindsay Elmore. So let me know how I can best serve you because ultimately, I just want people to know that they deserve to be healthy.
0: Yeah, we all deserve that. Well, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Elmore. I'm so excited that we finally got the chance to talk and I can't wait to share this episode.
1: Thank you so much for having me. What a joy.
0: Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers.